This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Want to eat inside a restaurant? Don't forget your vaccine certificate. Proof of vaccination day has arrived in this province and Ontarians have questions. How long will the controversial program be here for? If you haven't located it yet, how do you find your certificate? Do police and bylaw officers have the resources to enforce the new rules? Answers were in short supply when Premier Doug Ford stepped up to the mic today. As we begin this vaccine certificate, there'll be a period of learning. I want to be clear, enforcement will lead with education. Vaccine passports or certificates launched in Ontario last week, a development welcomed by some and strongly opposed by others. The launch raises a myriad of legal, ethical, privacy, and policy issues as jurisdictions around the world grapple with the continued global pandemic and the unusual requirements of demonstrating vaccination in order to enter some public or private spaces. Professor Colleen Flood, a colleague at the University of Ottawa, has been writing and thinking about these issues for many months. This week, she'll be part of a panel discussion that explores the policy challenges that's being hosted by the University of Ottawa's Centre for Health, Law, Policy and Ethics and the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. She joins me on the podcast with an advanced preview as we discuss the legal balancing act of vaccine passports or certificates, models from around the world, and the concerns that government should be thinking about in this next stage of dealing with COVID-19. Colleen, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm really glad that you're able to come on. You know, this podcast is going to drop on Monday morning, September 27th. And later that day, the University of Ottawa Center for Health, Law, Policy and Ethics, as well as the Center for Law, Technology and Society, a couple of centers near and dear to both of our hearts, will host a panel discussion on the legal, ethical and privacy aspects of vaccine passports and certificates. I'd encourage everyone to tune in to what promises to be a great discussion, and you can catch it online afterward if you miss the live stream. I thought I'd start our discussion with the title of the program, though, which cites both vaccines, vaccine passports and certificates, sort of a slash vaccine passport Mm -hmm. certificates. Can you unpack the language a little bit for me? You know, what are we discussing? Why the differences? And and does it matter? Uh, Yeah, I I think when we were first we were first uh, discussing this, um, the way that uh, the language was employed was using vaccine passports. And uh, we, w- we started um, analysing this back in before January, uh, kind of seeing that it was likely that we would need um, some kind of me- mechanism to uh, record or to um, uh, acknowledge the, the status of one's vaccination. Um, and the, the language at that time was vaccine passports. But as we started to try to discuss this with policymakers and others, that that language in and of itself seemed to set people off. There's something about a passport, perhaps it's ubiquitous and um, all-encompassing. Um, basically, people didn't like that word. So um, we started, you know, to try to to explain it's really just like a vaccine certificate, like, you know, you have for your kids the old yellow cards, 
um, recording the fact that one has been vaccinated and and um, and at what time. So that's why we sort of said vaccine passports, vaccine certificates, they're, they're sort of the same thing in our mind. Yeah. Do you expect the policymakers are going to make that kind of shift given some of the public response and the connotations that people have with respect to using the word passport? Yeah, I think so. And also the idea of a mandate, you know, there's also a negative reaction against mandates and uh, by some, in some quarters. And so uh, you see, for example, in Alberta, the idea there is, is not so much as a mandate, it just means that you don't have to comply with other restrictions as a business if you use a vaccine, um, require proof of vaccination at the door. So I think you see them sort of um, trying to use different terminologies. Even VaxPass seems to somehow be, you know, if it's just an abbreviation, somehow seems to be a little bit more acceptable than vaccine passport but the reality is you know globally uh, if you're tra trying to travel these days um, you know you do need proof of vaccination to avoid a lot of other restrictions that might be imposed on you um, so you know it is often coupled with the use of your actual passport if you're traveling internationally Right. So there really is those the, those two dimensions, both the international travel side and and now some of the domestic considerations. We'll turn to the domestic stuff in just a moment. But, you know, you mentioned that, that you were focusing on this many, many months ago. And I think a lot of the talk really was on on the international aspects associated with this, a desire to create a system that would more ready allow, readily allow for cross-border travel. You know, how has that unfolded in your mind? What are some of the challenges that have emerged? Um, yeah, we were actually considering it in both aspects um, because we thought that it was possible that by now we would be at, a, at a, a point in the pandemic where we may need to employ it domestically. So we were counselling governments to try to prepare for that. You know, hopefully they wouldn't have to use it if all it went as well as we hoped, but that, you know, you can't just pull it out of your back pocket and do it in a safe, privacy-respecting, human rights-respecting kind of a way if you're doing it last minute. Um, so we were talking about it domestically back then, but internationally, um, part of the problem has just been a resistance to the idea um, and, a, you know, an unwillingness to consider that it may be a useful tool. And then if you think about that, then how to design it the best way. Um, so the World Health Organization, for example, has you know resisted really um, the idea of border control and the use of things like um, vaccine passports, you know, an emphasis on the idea that we really have to get everybody vaccinated first before we even have these kinds of discussions. And I think all of that has made it a little bit more difficult to have a well, it's made it more difficult to have a concerted, sensible. Um, global policy where we we're sort of coordinated about what the requirements are but you know internationally part of the big the big difficulties are acknowledging uh which kinds of vaccines are good enough um what the kind of proof that you have to provide so you know problems with fraudulent provision of sort of paper vaccinations or creating rubbishy ones at the back of someone's printer uh, and using that for global travel. So, um, but then other people who have, you know, I, I've just been way in New Zealand on sabbatical coming back to Canada, um, you know, will, 
domestically here, my problem will be getting recognition of my um, vaccination status from New Zealand here now that I'm back. Right. No, the, uh, you, you do hear about these kinds of issues, the, the, some of the forgery, some of them that I've seen circulated around quite bad. Is there mm-hmm. anyone that, that's done this well, or is it just a, this kind of grab bag of different approaches from country to country that creates some real challenges for anyone who's looking to travel internationally is you've got to kind yeah, of figure out precisely what the rules you have to meet? Absolutely. So it is a grab bag of things, and it's not just your vaccination status. It's also, you know, uh, where and when sometimes you've been tested, are there other quarantine requirements and so forth and so on. So, you know, you really are you know, often doing a kind of a bit of a moonshot to go anywhere internationally. And then, of course, you know, the changing circumstances of the pandemic uh, mean that sometimes those requirements change while you're, you're away. And as you're you know, trying to get back, you might find things, um, you might find it difficult um, so depending on how a particular jurisdiction is responding to COVID-19, uh, whether they're closing borders and, and so forth and so on. So it isn't just a problem of vac- vaccination passports. It's a problem more generally of the myriad kind of restrictions that are, are being imposed on folks as they're trying to travel around. Yeah. Now, speaking of restrictions, you know, not everybody, of course, has to travel internationally, but certainly people domestically have a need to go to all sorts of different places. And we, of course, have started to see uh, in many provinces, including in Ontario, some some rules with entry to some public places and some private places contingent on either proof of vaccination or at times a, a negative COVID test. Can, can you walk through a little bit some of the, the balancing act uh, from an ethics perspective, let's say, that we're facing between, of course, the public health concerns on the one hand and the, the freedoms that, that most people expect they have to be able to, to go into public places without the, the need to provide that kind of information? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, the, the claim is from some that uh, requirements for uh, proof of vaccination is, uh, is um, impacting one's uh, civil, civil liberties um, and human rights. And so, you know, the claim would be under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you know, Section 6, Mobility Rights, uh, Section 2, uh, Religious and Conscience Rights, um, uh, and um, Section 7, Liberty and Security Rights, um, perhaps Section 15, Section 8 when it comes to privacy. So various um, kinds of claims are sometimes raised uh, that their that folks' rights are being infringed. Um, I don't think that m- mostly what we're talking about when we're talking about rights to access things like bars and uh, casinos, strip clubs for some reason I've specifically mentioned, but these kinds of venues, you know, the first question is, does this rise to the level of a, a prima facie charter right? Is it a right to go to a, a bar or a, a restaurant? Um, and I, you know, I don't think myself looking at the Chartered jurisprudence that it that that there necessarily isn't is even a claim that it triggers some kind of prima facie charter right, but then of course, um, as you well know, rights under the charter aren't absolute, and um, they may be a government may defend 
and infringement of a right. So, for example, a mobility claim on the grounds that in the context of the pandemic um, and the need to protect others um, and the need to protect the healthcare system, that it is reasonable and proportionate for the government to do what it's doing. Um, and in the context right now where we are with the pandemic, you know, we're dealing with um, a very virulent variant with a Delta variant. It's highly transmissible. And the other fact that a court would have to consider but for any claim is that um, the uh, vaccines themselves are not working as well against the Delta variant um, as they to stop transmission as we had seen with um, we had seen earlier in the pandemic. And so the estimates on how effective the vaccines are at stopping transmission vary some, but you know, we sort of say perhaps somewhere around the 60 to 70 percent um, reduction in transmission as opposed to the 90 percent. And that rather ironically means that because the vaccines aren't working as well against the Delta variant, that we actually need more people to be vaccinated um, to protect um, those who can't be vaccinated. So right now, all the kids under 12, um, all the people who, you know, for medical reasons can't be vaccinated and the very, very vulnerable um, for whom, you know, even although they're protected because they're vaccinated, if the, if the virus breaks through so they still become infected, they might still become quite sick because they are so vulnerable. So it's this sort of paradox, you know, you hear the anti-vaxxers claiming, well, the vaccines don't work very well, so, you know, you, you shouldn't be requiring everyone to be vaccinated, but it's actually the opposite. If the vaccines worked 100% well, we probably wouldn't need to try to get, you know, closer to between 90 and 100% of the population vaccinated. We could probably live with about 70%. So it's, it's the kind of context of where we are in the pandemic, pandemic, and it's the risk both to the unvaccinated themselves, but to others around um, in society right now that we need to try to spur higher rates of vaccination. And if we can do that, you know, by saying, look, you know, if you're prepared to roll up your sleeve, then you, you know, you can go to the pub. Um, I suspect a court, well, I suspect a court would find that both reasonable and proportionate in the circumstances right now, you know. Um, and I think the really important thing to realize is that this analysis that I'm giving you here is contextual to the pandemic right now. You know, it's where we're at right now. So, you know, I know some folks are really worried about the slippery slope of vaccine passports and it's embedding some sort of awful government thing. Um, but, you know, the, the justification for it will wane. We won't, we won't need them necess necessarily, um, you know, in hopefully a few months. Hopefully we won't need them. We'll have done, done the trick. Um, so, you know, I think over time, you know, we have to reevaluate. Are the justifications still sufficient for us to require vaccine passports? And I think with a pinch of luck, they will disappear. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that, that kind of shifting analysis or shifting circumstances, I suppose, of course, has been a hallmark, I think, of what we've all experienced mm-hmm. for the last year and a half. Do you think that, that government and policymakers, as they put this into place, are sufficiently adept at, at kind of navigating those changes? You know, I, I can certainly hear people saying, we understand, you know, we, we get that right now, there's this need for this, but just government hasn't proven itself, some would say you know, ability to pivot fast enough. And once we put this into place, the notion that somehow they'll just make a shift in a few months because circumstances have changed, you know, may strike some as unlikely. Um, Well, you know, I guess that's a fair point, um, that government is not always what we aspire it to be or hope it to be. I think, you know, the conservative governments that have, reluctantly now bought in um, vaccination passports or vaccination certificate requirements in Ontario and Alberta have made it pretty abundantly clear they really don't want to be doing this. So I suspect, you know, to appeal politically to their base and so forth, they'll be wanting to get rid of it. So the politics might line up um, in in the large provinces to um, to move away from that in any in, in any regard, but you know we always do have the ability um, uh, to uh, challenge this under the charter as we go along. And so you may be right. Um, perhaps some governments might see some advantage to requiring proof of vaccination, although I find it hard to see what that would be really, given you know the cost for businesses and. And, um, you know, I don't. I think most of us don't really want to have to do this, even if we support it as a measure to um, fight the pandemic, you know, the political costs of this. So I really do think it will have a natural expiry date um, politically uh, and otherwise. But if not, then one could bring a successful charter challenge, um, most likely to say, you know, you don't need to have this anymore. So why do you have it? Yeah. You know, one of the issues that comes to mind, in addition to the, the the many charter issues that you have identified, and I guess it wraps up in the charter as well, of course, is privacy-related issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sort of immediately comes to mind, both with respect to the way that one implements the, the system and uses different kinds of technology to try to do that, as well as the need to provide that kind of information. Mm-hmm. You know, how do, how do we address some of those privacy issues? Have, have privacy commissioners or, or others in the community spoken out about how you navigate some of those concerns? Um, I'm not sure what the privacy commissioners are saying, um, but um, I agree that, um, you know, concerns about privacy are um, important and that they need to be, uh, the the VAX pass regime or system um, needs to be designed with privacy, best privacy principles in mind. Um, The way that... um, my colleague uh, and your colleague um, Vivek and I and Vivek has described it as that with a good design, it should be basically like your license plate um, on your car. So you see the license plate on your car; it's flash, you know, one time really at the um, server as you're crossing the threshold of wherever. Uh, and that then um, is all that's needed. They don't need to take any more information. It's just to validate the fact that you've had a vaccination um, that is current um, and boom, you're in. So, uh, you know, I I am not an expert um, in privacy law as you are, Michael and Vivek, but I think that from 
all accounts that I hear is that it can be done well. It can be done in a privacy protective kind of a mode. Uh, and, um, you know, similar to uh, flashing your license plate. Now, of course, there will, can always be bad actors um, and folks who will, uh, you know, perhaps want to take that information, you know, I guess going into a restaurant or a bar. Uh, but again, as you know better than I, they already have so many other means to extract your personal health information as you're coming in um, in other kinds of ways. Um, it seems would seem surprising if they'd need this as well. But, um, you know, I know at least in the Ontario regulations, there are penalties for, um, for those who might try to take more information than is required. So it says, you know, you, none of this information is, is kept. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I think too that it's important to note that um, there would be, um, you know, one of the arguments that we made was that it would be important, we thought, for governments to actually um, roll out these systems because they then should, you know, be under the sunlight of charter scrutiny. They should be under the sunlight of scrutiny from a privacy perspective. And that that overall would be a better thing to happen than for individual businesses um, on their own steam to implement, you know, requirements for citing um, vaccination um, passports and so on. So we thought that might be kind of a wild west if, if that was to happen. But um, so we thought it would be better actually if governments did this because of the, all the legal checks that would then ensue. Right, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, that, and, I, and I recall reading that that was one of the concerns you highlighted that if the governments fail to act, the private sector would. Mm -hmm. uh, have, have we seen some of those kind of initiatives that that might now be, I guess, surpassed by the some of the provincial yeah. initiatives yeah, that we're starting to see? You have, and um, uh, and I have to say that the ones that you know. We're moving first in the end, perhaps that was actually a good thing. We were kind of imagining perhaps more, you know, unfortunate um, uh, examples of, of implementing VAX checks without, you know, all the bells and whistles. But, you know, you I think you want to have a regime where it is clear what the responsibilities are regarding um uh, privacy, for example, that no other data is needed to be provided to the to the venue apart from flashing the fact that you've got the QR code, um, or you know, on your either on your paper, on your piece of paper, or on your phone, however you want to do it, and that's all that's needed, right? No other information needs to be collected. And as I said, I think it's better if the if if the government does this as opposed to um, individual private providers, but. I guess people have very different views on this. Uh, you know, a lot of folks seem to think it's much worse if government does it as opposed to the private sector, but I don't really get that. Yeah, we certainly have seen a fair number of private sector initiatives, especially on the technical side. I know that, you know, it's almost as soon as the Ontario government launched its initiative, people were identifying easier ways to insert this into your Apple yeah, uh, wallet and things like that. Sort of essentially say we're not going to wait for the for the government to move. It's unfortunate 
given that this is people have known this is coming for so long that the government wasn't able to roll something out at the same time you know in some ways there there echoes a little bit of some of the debates over the contact tracing apps that we had earlier in the pandemic and you know mm-hmm. the value of using technology and the role that government plays in that yeah yeah for sure um i you know i think with this though uh you know not everybody will want to have it digitally for all sorts of reasons one two can and um you know, providing that you you have a, a paper with your QR code or, a, you know, I, I can't I can't see why that would be a problematic either. So, um, you know, it's just really a requirement of proof proof of vaccination. The digitalization makes it more convenient and probably helps safeguard against some of the fraud, perhaps. Although I think there can be debates about that, but you know, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting you note the sort of the paper-based version. I I teach an annual course with uh, the University of Haifa and in Israel and Bocconi University in Italy, and uh, we focused back in May on a whole series of sort of COVID meets technology issues. And one of the first issues that we focused on were vaccine passports and certificates. And, mm-hmm. and you may recall, of course, that uh, Israel was certainly far ahead of of Canada at that time. Uh, yeah. Most of the Canadians were bemoaning the lack of access to vaccines, whereas in Israel, the, the focal point was on the issue that we're talking about. Um, yeah, on, on the on, on, yeah. Exactly. And, and the, many of the students said that while there was an electronic version, they simply relied on a paper-based version for entry into malls or into the university or the range of places where the, mm-hmm. that system was in place. You know, it, it brings to mind this question of, of you know, kind of models that, that we can be following as, as we start seeing this rolled out in provinces across the country. Is there anyone in your mind that, that has been doing this particularly well? Because we're obviously not the first to, to start trying to move in this direction. Well, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of what we will um, follow to some extent is, um, you know, what has happened in, in Israel for sure with the green pass, but um I, you know, when we talk about how to do it well, we have to talk about it in the context of the Canadian um, circumstance. So Canadian laws, Canadian privacy requirements, Canadian human rights regimes and all that sort of thing. And then in the context of where we are in the pandemic. So all of those things together, I think, have to go into you know, what is the best sort of system um, for for us uh, right right now? So I think we can take inspiration from things like um, the Green Pass in Israel. Um, one of the things that most that uh, folks who have legitimate, I think, as opposed to spurious worries about the vaccination passport bring up um, is the worry about enforcement. And so discriminatory enforcement against, you know, folks from racial um, groups or visible minorities or the homeless and so on. So I think this is an issue that we really have to keep a close eye on. I, I, I think it will be difficult to, you know, difficult to really sort of um, probably detect problems with this but there may be that you have examples of of servers or owners of businesses you know perhaps scrutinizing more deeply um people's um vaccine passports from if they have certain characteristics and 
you know, we have we have this problem more generally about how we enforce laws um, and policy requirements. Uh, so I think this has to be attended to. Um, and that that's a big issue uh, for us. And I, I, I'm honestly not sure what we do about that. But I also know on the other side of the ledger that if COVID um, wreaks havoc, uh, which it can do with the Delta, as we're seeing in Alberta uh, and in other places that haven't controlled it well, uh, you know, its victims are mainly those from um, more marginalised communities. And so you've got both sides of the ledger here. You know, there is this possible risk, I guess, of um, uh, unfair enforcement and discrimination against some folks. Uh, but on the other hand, it's those those the same people and their communities that will be most at risk if um, COVID takes off again. And of course, not only from the disease itself, but from the other measures that we have would have to put into place, like lockdowns and um, and that sort of thing. So, you know, the the collateral damage of the precautions that we have to take against um, COVID nineteen are also more heavily borne by these more vulnerable communities, marginalised communities. So that's a tough one. But I think going along with vaccine passports, you know, best practices also suggest that at the same time, we need to be getting uh, vaccines to the people in the easiest way possible. So all those folks that haven't got vaccinated, that are willing to get vaccinated now, you know, this this shouldn't be like the Hunger Games as it was in Ontario when, it, when we were first getting the vaccines into the arms of everyone. It's got to be a hell of a lot easier than that. And so, you know, someone working a couple of jobs with a couple of kids and no one to look after them, you know, that, that you can easily walk out the door and get your vaccine without having to move heaven and heck to, to get there. So, um, you know, I think those are two things that have to be attended to for uh, the, best kind of, um, the best kind of system. Um, and the privacy, uh, you know, making sure that we have good privacy protections as well so that people aren't worried about this data being used in any other kind of way um, to adversely um, harm them, sorry, to harm them in any kind of way. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it sounds like that where you're landing is that there are challenges to be sure, both in terms of ensuring that there, there is that access to the vaccines, that there are the necessary safeguards, both from a timeliness perspective assessing whether or not this remains necessary as well as the kinds of precautions you've been talking about say on the privacy side in terms of how this gets implemented but all of this in a context of like obviously a a global pandemic in which the public health care benefits outweigh some of those risks so long as we are attuned to some of the some of those risks and challenges along the way absolutely you know uh, it certainly isn't anything I, I know that people like why would we want to do this you know there really i don't you know the, there really is no grand conspiracy here um as you sort of hear, hear about a fair bit um like first of all no one could get that organized i think to have such a grand conspiracy but secondly you know I, i'm sure you, neither you nor i really have any desire to have to show a vaccine passport and go to a restaurant. You know, this is not anything that anyone wants to do. Um, But for the purposes of protecting the unvaccinated, the kids under 12, 
the vulnerable and just trying to bring this thing to its knees for a time limited period, this is the right thing to do. I should I should also add that I think a really good feature of any vaccine passport would just to heal, hark back to our earlier point would be to sort of have um, a sunset clause on them and so that we would, you know, review it in a few months to see is this absolutely necessary anymore? Can, you know, or can we achieve our goal through uh, lesser means now? It's just some, some some interesting proposals about how we can address some of those issues. And I'm sure more of those will, will come up as part of the discussion panel uh, mm-hmm. that will take place on Monday. Colleen, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.